From State Impact Pennsylvania, this is Energy Explained, a podcast where we go behind the stories to explain Pennsylvania's energy economy. I'm Amy Sisk. We encounter a lot of studies and reports on everything from the public health effects of fracking to the impacts of climate change. Not all research is created equal, and the way it's presented in the news can have a big impact on the public's perception of those issues. With me today are two journalists who've spent a lot of time digging into scientific research. State Impact Pennsylvania's Susan Phillips is in Philadelphia. She won a DuPont Columbia Award for her work covering fracking in Pennsylvania and studied at MIT as a night science journalism fellow. Also with us today from Cambridge is Alana Gordon. Alana is a current Knight Fellow at MIT who reported on health for WHYY's health and science show, The Pulse. Susan and Alana, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks. Thank you. Now, as reporters, we get a lot of emails and phone calls with story tips, and there's a lot of new research that comes across our radar. So when you get word that a new scientific study has come out, I'm curious what you guys do to evaluate it, and how do you even know that it's newsworthy? Milana, let's start with you. Well, I think it's really easy to get new studies and have the urge to want to report on them as news because it's this kind of boxed in, hey, these researchers did this thing and hey, there are these findings. So at first glance, it's a very tempting and easy thing to report on a study as kind of a one-off news story, but it depends on whether it's in my wheelhouse of area of interest and coverage to know whether or not, oh, that's interesting, that kind of builds on some previous understandings or that challenges that. But within the study itself, I mean, I think that there are questions to look at in terms of what journal has it been published in, looking at the study itself beyond what the press release says. That's a big one. How big is the study? I'm not an expert, so it's always important to contact people who are very well-versed in the field, maybe who aren't involved in the study, to get their take. There's a lot of incentive, depending on where a study comes out from, of the newness of the breakthroughs to capture, you know, a broader general attention. But science is incremental. And so sometimes it's looking for keywords to be looking out for. Um, I know, Susan, that you can get into a lot of this, but uh, there's some interesting also areas to talk about in terms of when looking at the study itself. But the biggest thing is to look at the study itself first. Definitely. And Susan, how do you vet new research that you hear about? I agree with everything that Alana just said. And I think that it's really important to understand that it's actually a lot harder than you think to turn around um, a story about a study. I mean, people often think, oh, that's just a daily story and I can just call the researcher and put it out there. And it's not. Okay, it's not. It's not a political story. It's not he said, she said. And what you want to know is, is it in a peer-reviewed journal that's a well-known journal that you have respect for? Do you know the researchers? I mean, a lot of times if I know the researchers and I have vetted them prior to this, then I just have more trust in what they're saying and what they're doing. And then I'll call other people, like Alana said, who are in the field but who are have nothing to do with the study and ask them, is this worth reporting on? Is there anything new here that the audience can get from it? Um, and then the other thing that you really want to look at is who funded the study. There's a good example. Can I chime in on that? Yeah. Where um, often when there's contentious 
topics like in public health and you get a press release about or a new study that shows the benefits of salt and then you realize it's by like the Salt Industry Association, you might want to like put a little more scrutiny into um, what the claims are, what the interests are in results turning to a certain way. Um, I guess that would be the opposite of like peer reviewed. Right. And, and you also want to make sure that you're doing this for a general audience and you don't want to distort the information for them. Right. Especially if you're doing a radio spot where it's hard to do the nuance of the study. You know, in my field, fracking, for instance, is fracking good or fracking bad? Does fracking pollute the water? Or does it not pollute the water? And there's nothing out there that says either one of those. They're all very nuanced and built on a base of research that's happening, especially for fracking, started happening sort of late in the game. And so fracking started coming to Pennsylvania before there was a lot of research on the impacts of water or the impacts of health. And so it's almost like the research community was sort of playing catch up. And the other thing you want to look at is the data that they're using. You know, how much data? What's the sample size? But also, you really just don't want to confuse the general public, which is why I really steer away from doing these 45-second radio spots on a study. And Susan, in the course of your reporting, um, particularly on you know fracking and the public health impacts, um, I've noticed that you often reach out to researchers who are not involved in those studies to get their take. And can you talk a bit more about why you do that and why it's important to do that? Well, it's like any balanced story, right? You, you don't want to do a story with one source where one person is saying one thing and you don't go and check it. You don't cover crime and just do what the police say, Right. You want to go out there, you want to talk to victims, you want to talk to, say, for instance, the person's defense lawyer, if you can't talk to the accused him or herself, you know, you want to balance out the story. We hold up peer review as sort of the gold standard. I mean, there's a lot of problems with a peer review process, but it's the best we have. So you want to start there. You want to make sure that this study was actually reviewed by other scientists objectively who gave their input and said, okay, you know, scientist A, you need to go back and check these things, these things, these things before we're going to actually publish this study in a reputable journal. But then you also want to go beyond that when you're doing the story and say, okay, I want to talk to other researchers who can evaluate this study better than I can. What people don't understand I think the general public doesn't understand is each scientific report, for the most part, tries to answer one question, right? And it doesn't always come to this causal conclusion. As an example, there's a study that I, maybe it was a year ago I I reported on this, where, you know, they found that babies born to women who were living very close to fracking sites had a statistically significant lower birth weight, They didn't say why. They could speculate why. But the interesting thing about this study was that they had this treasure trove of data that went back all the way before the fracking even began, right? So they could compare it before and after in these same areas. And, you know, in that case, it was actually done by an economist. And so I called other economists, other environmental economists, and talked to them, as well as other people in the public health field um, who have looked at these issues. 
Clearly, covering scientific research is not just as straightforward as picking up the phone and calling the lead author for an interview, as you know you just laid out. Um, can you guys give me an example of a study that you have covered that has particularly challenged you? And Alana, let's start with you. Well, it's tricky because I often find that evidence is challenging, like covering, for example, evidence around treatments or drug treatments or approaches to addiction. And within that, there's a lot of really heated debate, both outside of the scientific discussion and inside. So it's kind of sifting out opinion, popular beliefs from what research is finding, as well as from for the need for really rigorous research. So an example I would give recently was I was working on a story about the evidence for supervised injection, which is a public health intervention related to people who inject drugs, illicit drugs. And there's an approach that is not legal in the United States where people who use drugs would go into a facility and inject those drugs under medical supervision with the idea being that if something goes awry, if there's an overdose, there's someone there to respond. And there's been a lot of look at this sort of thing, and there's a lot of literature and research, but what rises to the top? And so kind of sifting through the different levels and bulk of like how solid of a study is this, usually kind of one of the higher regards is like a meta-analysis, which looks at all of the research out there and kind of assesses which are the most solid studies and kind of compares them to assess then what is the evidence for something like that, because that feels like such a pertinent question. And some studies have come out recently on that. One was by some economists in the UK, and it found that uh, the evidence for things like supervised injection in countries that had it was not as strong as previously believed and may in fact have potentially negative outcomes. And there was a lot of questions among the research community about this research. And it later turned out that the study was retracted. Um, And I had reported on the study in the broader context of what is the evidence for these sorts of things. Um, And one of the issues was the way that it compared different studies that looked at different things. And so it's difficult to match up when you're looking at different outcomes to understand what what the direct evidence or impact is of a particular intervention, let's say on crime or on the spread of HIV or on overdose deaths. And so this is just an example of like really having to take some time to talk to different researchers and I think does more of a benefit to all of us to kind of understand some of that messy process. And it's also kind of humbling if you ever want to feel really humbling about science and research, go to retractionwatch.org. And it has a list of all these studies that wind up getting retracted from journals. I think it's really tempting for me to want to see a study and be like, look at what we found, and this is it. And it's a lot more of a continuum and a process of learning and confirming or questioning kind of how research is done as well. That's not to say that it's not valuable and we shouldn't be reporting on it in the process, but it's humbling. Yeah. Alana, um, talk with me about, you know, what you do in that case. If you've done a story about research that gets retracted, what's the responsible way to then handle that and address that with your listeners or your readers? So it, it varies on the situation. Sometimes it warrants an additional article. It absolutely warrants an update within the article itself to note that that study was retracted. And whether that update affects 
the meat of the story then is a conversation between you and the editor of how to make a correction. And Susan, can you think of a time when you've been reporting on a study and it's turned out to be particularly challenging? I think in my case, when I started covering fracking, you know, the industry really started pushing back a lot on any coverage that they thought was in any way negative, including the scientific research that was coming out that drew questions about the environmental or public health impacts of fracking. And this goes all the way back to 2011, when Rob Jackson and Avner Vengosh from Duke University did a study that talked about methane migration and the impacts of fracking and how it could cause methane migrating into private water wells. And there was a big, you know, backlash. They got a lot of criticism from industry and even the head of the Department of Environmental Protection of Pennsylvania testified in Congress, you know, basically questioning their integrity. That really hasn't ended when it comes to industry. And and they really push back on journalists that are covering this stuff, including myself. And a lot of times what they'll do is they will try to get you to quote them in the article as if they are a valid source that can evaluate a scientific study. And typically, it's somebody who, you know, I don't know, maybe they have a communications degree, um, or they have a PhD, you know, in English literature, but they do not have uh, the scientific credentials to evaluate the study itself. And they will, you know, obfuscate and try to manipulate you. Um, And in the case of the low birth weight study, there was an industry group that kept pushing me and pushing me and, and, and saying, you got to put our opinion in there and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, your contribution to a story like this is how are you going to evaluate the information in the study and change your practices? Your contribution is not to evaluate the science because you are not qualified to evaluate the science. And that's very clear when you're in a conversation with them because they don't understand They don't understand what the conclusion is. You know, I remember having this back and forth with this woman over the low birth weight study, and she kept saying, no, this is wrong, this is wrong, and look how bad their research is. And she didn't quite understand even what the research was. She didn't understand what the researchers even did. And, you know, finally she got so frustrated that she said to me, you're writing a story and you're saying that we hurt babies. And I was like, no. The study says that there is a statistically significant relationship between low birth weights and living very close, not like half a mile away or a mile away, but very close to these gas well sites. Nobody is saying that the gas industry is out to hurt babies. So my question is, is the gas industry going to evaluate this study and try to figure out how they can change their practices in some way. But they won't answer those questions. They will never answer those questions, right? And I think if you're just starting out reporting on a controversial subject like that, you really have to be careful about the sources you use and not be manipulated by industry that clearly has an agenda not to understand what the science is necessarily, at least the people you talk to in the press office, maybe there are other people in the industry who do want to understand the science, but you never get to talk to them. But they feel like their job is just to squash whatever they conceive of as negative press coverage. 
So what would be your advice to reporters who are just diving into this field of scientific research? And how can you know journalists make sure that we are presenting information responsibly? Susan, go ahead. I mean, I think the first thing is don't get excited about a headline that you see from a from a study. Understand that you're actually going to have to do a lot of work. You're going to have to read the study. You're going to have to go and talk to other scientists in this research field because and then it's going to take them time to read the study. You can't just call them up and ask for their opinion. Like it's not political reporting, right? You have to go and you have to have relationships with researchers who you know, are willing to actually read the study as well, and then come back and comment to you on it. And that can take time, that can take a day, at least, or maybe two. So it's not like a quick turnaround, necessarily. What do you think, Alana? Yeah, absolutely. So going from what Susan was saying, like, in science, real breakthroughs are really rare. So sometimes having some red flags when you see certain kind of language cures used in press releases or in like, studies and things like that can be generally something to approach with a lot of questions. Um, Studies are amazing. Science is amazing. And so I hope that this conversation doesn't deter people from diving in. But I think both what Susan and I would agree on is that it's not about being a journalist who covers studies. Studies is part of a broader framework of the types of issues that we're interested in. Um, Your question about what can people getting into this, what advice do you have? Like, There are some really amazing and helpful tools for journalists. Um, For example, the Association of Healthcare Journalists has guides on how to cover medical studies. And I have one in front of me. Um, It's written by Gary Schweitzer from Health News Review that has all sorts of tips online. But literally one of like the first pages of it, I keep this at my desk and I've have for years is like the hierarchy of evidence pyramid. And so studies can encompass so many different things from environmental to um, drug development. And so, for example, the bottom of the pyramid of like the weakest, but still some things that are part of the literature is like editorials, opinions, and then it moves up there's animal research. And then above that, there's case reports. Above that, there's case control studies. Then there's like much higher above that, which is getting much more to like a gold standard of of the approach to finding the most effective evidence for treatments, randomized, controlled, double-blind studies. And there's a lot of more information on what that means. Um, So that's like one kind of like, you know, workshoppy sort of thing for people um, that are diving into stuff that kind of also just helps with understanding the language and the methodologies and the approaches. One of the areas I've been really interested in learning more about as a night science journalism fellow is research and coverage of addiction. We all have assumptions. And I think one of the great challenges that journalists and scientists share is like the challenge and desire to observe and to really kind of from an objective way understand what's going on. And that is really hard to do. And so asking these basic questions, making sure that sometimes the assumptions that we all make may actually be worthwhile asking about. So so there's this really interesting thing that's come up in conversations in my um, research on um, stories like this. And it comes one of the most cited moments in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1980 was just like a few sentences. It was a short letter published on January 10th, 1980, and its title was Addiction Rare in Patients Treated with Narcotics. And it became one of the most cited 
bits of evidence backing that throughout the years and being noted and marketing and everything else, how narcotics and opioids aren't addictive. And so this is a really hard thing. It's a really hard thing covering science, medicine, environment. But just an example of that is just a very humbling thing to think about and how we look at the assumptions that are made sometimes with good intentions or not or whatever. And it's our job as journalists in the same way as scientists to really try and observe and question and do a better job of like distilling that and translating what we do when we don't know to listeners. Yeah. And I would just, I mean, I would just add to that, that, you know, the great thing about science, reporting on science is really the longer stories that I've done. I mean, those are, those are really exciting, especially if, you know, you see a study and you don't want to report on it, but it sort of like piques your curiosity about something. I mean, I know one of the first stories I did when I started recovering fracking, you know, and when everybody was like, is it going to make us sick? Is it what's going to what's going to happen? Just the process of reporting that story, I learned a lot about epidemiology and just the limits of epidemiology, especially on, in environmental factors um, and how hard it is to you know, nail down, you know, this direct connection, say, between um, living near a fracking site and asthma, for example. But, you know, a lot of different things can cause illnesses. And so my process of learning, I sort of turned it into the story, right, of a doctor trying to figure it out, too. And I mean, I think that's one thing that's important to remember about science and science reporting is it's a process. It's a learning process. And you're not necessarily going to hit the jackpot and get the conclusion you want. But the the stories that come out of it can be fascinating. And sometimes it's just doing the stories of people's research. You know, what are they doing? What are the questions they're asking? And how do they try to answer those questions? And, and just getting, you know, the average person to understand what the day of a life of a scientist is, or a week, or a year, and, and just get them to understand, I think, what the scientific method is and how that process works is, is really important. Do you have any advice for the average news consumer who sees a news story about new scientific research? And are there any you know, red flags that they should look for or signs that they should pick up on that the reporter and the researchers have done their due diligence? I think just in the same way as if as I'm reading a press release or something, is it a single source? And if something's a single source story, then you know that there has not been as much diligence as need be in coverage of a study. So that would be a main one. Um, sensationalist language um, about treatments is often a red flag. And also language like Susan was alluding to earlier, causation link association um when i see things or percentages a 50 percent increase um in uh in some death or something or disease well was it 0.00002 percent to begin with that doubled to 0.00004 so percentages can be misleading in in journalism potentially as a reader kind of keeping an eye on not the number itself but the context of what that number is trying to convey Um, and that's something as journalists that we have to 
you know, continue to work on and figure out and the sources. Um, and also, you know, when it comes to treatments and things like that, I'm always thinking about we didn't talk on this aspect of scientific research, but, you know, how much do these treatments cost? You know, what's the money aspect and implication to some of these things? That's another issue. Who stands to gain from this research? Even if you're looking for, you know, who paid for this research, but there's also another a flip side is who stands to gain from you doing a story about this quote unquote breakthrough. For example, like a gene therapy or something that could be beneficial to people with a certain eye disease. And again, yeah, there's a lot of things out there um, on the internet that are sensationalist. And, you know, you have to really evaluate based on where they are published. You know, is it a legitimate news source? Obviously, Scientific American is is high on the list of, of something you can trust. But there's a lot out there, you know, that are just like, who's doing this? You know, there's industry does a lot of stuff, um, has a lot of groups, you know, the the oil and gas industry, you know, they have their groups and they publish things all the time. And they often like will pay bloggers to write blogs. And those people aren't really qualified to criticize journalists stories, especially those that are that have to do with science. So there's a lot of disinformation that's actually paid for by industries that have a lot at stake at squashing good science. All right. Well, Susan and Alana, that's a lot of great insight into what it takes to do good journalism on scientific research. And thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. Alana Gordon is a Knight Science Journalism Fellow at MIT, and Susan Phillips is a reporter with State Impact Pennsylvania. State Impact is a public radio collaboration between WHYY, WITF, WESA, and the Allegheny Front covering Pennsylvania's energy economy. If you have an energy question you would like answered, check us out online. Go to the Ask Us page on the State Impact website. That's stateimpact.npr.org slash Pennsylvania. Our producer for this episode is Elizabeth Perez Luna, and our editor is Andy Cubis. Scott Blanchard is State Impact's editor. I'm Amy Sisk. Thanks for listening to Energy Explained.